It is such a joy for me and uh, several of our elders to be with you here this morning. We are just amazed at what the Lord has done. As Dusty mentioned, it's a historic day, both for Countryside Bible Church as well as for North Lake Bible Church. It was 14 years ago in October of 2008 that the elders decided that in God's goodness and his provision, we wanted to plant a church. Of course, one of the big questions that day was who exactly will pastor it? And unknown to us at the time, God had already provided because Dusty and Rebecca had begun to attend Countryside the year before that discussion. And later, of course, as he mentioned, would join our staff, serve as an elder, and uh, the rest uh, you saw on the chart. It's pretty amazing what has really happened. You know, it's been a wild ride for you. Uh, you start a public launch in February and just a couple of weeks later, three weeks later, four weeks later, the COVID thing happens and you're live streaming and then uh, meeting at Cinnamon Creek for more than a year. It's just remarkable to me, and I know it is to you, to see how the church has grown in that time. From about 200 uh, who initially attended to almost 500 now who are part of this church. 156 members have come since that day and 34 baptisms. But you know, I just think it's so exciting for us, and, and I know it is for Dusty and for you as well, to see how the Lord has grown his people, how he has transformed so many lives through the gospel, through the teaching of his word, through your ministry to one another, uh, really a great blessing. I just want to express my gratitude, obviously first and foremost to the Lord, who is, as Dusty mentioned a few minutes ago, he is the head of his church, and this is his doing. It's not ours, it's not Dusty's. It is his doing, and we give him praise for that. Also, I just want to thank the elders of Countryside for their, their courage and their faith in God and his word to launch out in this endeavor and uh, their wise and thoughtful planning that brought this along to this point. I want to say thank you to the oh, 150, 170 of you who left Countryside uh, with the heart to see the Lord plant an outpost for his word and his son in this place. And, uh, Thank you for your sacrifice in that, and obviously it hasn't been a sacrifice. You've been blessed here, but it was for us, uh, but thank you for coming. Also, for all of you who are here, thank you for making this church what it is. But of course, I, I want to say a special thanks to Dusty and Rebecca. Uh, we love them dearly and loved having them there, and I think they loved being there, but the Lord placed it in their hearts to do this, and they made the commitment to come and and build by God's grace a faithful church in this community you know I think you know this but let me just say that you have been greatly blessed by God in Dusty he is a uniquely gifted and faithful man and um, it's exciting to see how the Lord has used him and will use him it's been my privilege to be his pastor and to be his friend and to just watch now what the Lord does through his faithful ministry in this place now, as you celebrate today, the elders and members of Countryside Bible Church want to give you a gift just as a way of, of commemorating this day. Several years ago, as uh, Dusty mentioned, Brian Chandler, one of our elders, and Dusty met with the developer of Pecan Square, and they graciously offered us a piece of land right in the heart of this community for a future home for North Lake Bible Church. And uh, we were able because of God's provision to purchase 11 and a half acres in 
in, off of 407 that would be the future home of this church. Uh, we paid, I think, $600,000 for it, and now it's worth three to four times that amount. And it's just the Lord's provision all along as he's done with this church. And so on behalf of the members and elders of Countryside Bible Church, we give you that land as a gift to you and look forward to uh, the building that will eventually be built there. But no, yes, you're welcome. I look forward to what the Lord will do as an outpost of the gospel here in this place already and someday uh, in your own facility that's even more obvious what the Lord has done. So we look forward to that. Now, as Dusty mentioned, this is a special day because this is the day that in confirming what the Lord has done, what you have affirmed that Wade and Drew are God's men for this place, that makes three elders and therefore uh, exactly what we'd hoped and prayed for is happening today, and that is you are fully and completely independent, autonomous church, a local church under Christ in this place, under the elders. And with this momentous day in mind, as you know, Dusty has been teaching through about the church, explaining exactly what is to be true of the church. You've learned that Christ is the head of his church and that he has given gifted men to his church to lead and to teach, to serve as his under-shepherds in every local body. And every church, as you've discovered uh, biblically, every church is led by a plurality of qualified men. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, laid down those qualifications that mark all those who are to serve as elders. And, and you've affirmed that these three men meet those qualifications. You've discussed the role of elders, uh, summarized, I think, best in Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul writes that Christ has given gifted men to the church for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You've learned all of those things or been reminded of them in the last few weeks as Dusty has unpacked them. Today, it is my duty and privilege to finish that series on the church by dealing with the congregation's response to leadership. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. We don't know who wrote this letter, but we do know that he wrote it to a church that primarily consisted of professing Jewish Christians. The theme of this letter is the superiority of Jesus Christ over everything in the Old Covenant. The author finishes that argument, really the heart of his argument, at the end of chapter 12 in verses 28 and 29 with these words, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and fear, for our God is a consuming fire. The author finishes his central argument of the book demanding that true Christians offer service that's pleasing to God. But exactly what that wholehearted service to God looks like is unpacked and explained in the exhortations that come in chapter 13. Verses 1 to 6 of chapter 13 deal with personal relationships, marriage and otherwise. Verses 7 to 19 is where he really gives his practical admonition that grows out of the theme of the letter. But he bookends that practical ab admonition with two 
practical commands about how the people in the church are to respond to the leaders of the church. Verses 7 to 9 and verses 17 to 19. Let's read them together. These are the bookends around his final exhortation on the theme of the book in verses 10 to 16. So read with me these two bookends beginning in Hebrews 13 verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Now go down to verse 17. Here's the other bookend. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now in these two bookends, these two passages, there are two generations of leaders. In verses 7 to 9, you see the previous elders, those who founded the church and had at this point apparently died of either natural causes or perhaps even through persecution. In verses 17 to 19, he talks about the current elders, those who serve. So in these two paragraphs, we really learn our duties to those who lead, whether they are the faithful pastors and elders who led us in the past or whether they are our current leaders and elders. Before we look at the members' responsibility to the elders, I just want you to see a list from this passage of the key duties of elders. They're really spelled out here clearly, and I'll just show you the list. I won't walk through them in detail, but just point them out to you. First of all, to lovingly lead the church. Secondly, to faithfully teach the Word of God. Thirdly, to consistently serve as examples of believing, loving, and following Jesus Christ. To diligently keep watch over the souls of those we shepherd. And to faithfully pray for our members. That's a great list. In fact, that's essentially the job description of a pastor or elder. For the elders of Countryside and for Dusty, Drew, and Wade, that is the heart of our responsibility to the members of the churches that we serve. But the point of this passage we want to look at this morning is is not the duty of elders. These two paragraphs really set forth the primary duties that church members have to their leaders, to their elders. In the verses I just read for you, we learn several biblical duties that each of you has to the elders that Christ has now placed over this assembly of believers. In one sense, these are corporate responsibilities. As a church, you are responsible to do these things. But of course, chiefly, these are individual duties. Every person in this church, if you belong to this church, then You owe these things to these three men whom the Lord has placed here over you. Let's briefly consider them together. Your first duty to your elders is this, treasure their ministry. Treasure their ministry. Look at verse 7. 
Remember those who led you. This is a, a general, the word led there, it's a general Greek word for leaders. Clearly, the church to whom this letter is written had local leaders. This chapter mentions them three times, verse 7, verse 17, again in verse 24. And notice those leaders are identified and described in verse 7 as those who spoke the word of God to you. This probably refers to the initial preaching of the word of God that these Jewish believers had heard. They're mentioned back in chapter 2, as well as the ongoing instruction of God's word. It was through the faithful teaching of these former leaders that the believers in this church had been saved and had been taught. Remember them. That implies gratitude. It implies affection. Barnes writes this in his commentary, we should recall the truths which they taught and the exhortations which they addressed to us. We should cherish with kind affection the memory of all that they did for our welfare. It's really the same thing Paul says to the church in Thessalonians. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. He says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. He's talking about elders. The word appreciate is literally the Greek word to know. Here the idea is to know or acknowledge that they're worthy of your respect, to acknowledge their merit, to honor them. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The word esteem literally means to consider or to regard and very highly means beyond all measure. He's saying, I want you, when you think about the leaders who serve among you, I want you to acknowledge that they're worthy of your respect and honor, and I want you to regard them beyond all measure. Treasure them. Why is that? Well, because as you learn from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Christ, out of his kindness, has given you these men who are gifted. Dusty, Wade, and Drew are Christ's gifts to you. And so consider or regard them with respect, with honor, with affection, and with gratitude. So the writer of Hebrews begins by saying, you need to treasure gratefully them and their ministry to you. Go back to Hebrews 13, and there's a second duty that you have to your elders, not only to treasure their ministry, but secondly, to imitate their faith. To imitate their faith. Verse 7 goes on, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. The Greek word for imitate is the, the word from which we get our English word mimic. That's what it means, mimic them. Now, we are to imitate the faith of our leaders, the faith of our elders here in two ways. First of all, their conduct. Notice verse 7 says, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. We are to consider, that is, to examine carefully, to give careful thought to the result or the outcome of their conduct or their way of living, their way of life. 
The idea here is, remember, he's look, they're looking back at former elders, those who led them in the past. And he says, I want you to look at their whole lives from start to finish. I want you to look at the accomplishment of their lives. And when you see that their lives, in fact, adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you see that their lives are marked by faithfulness, when they're marked by love for Christ and love for his people, copy their conduct. Do what they did. That doesn't mean they're perfect. These elders that you have, just like the elders at Countryside, they're not perfect. But Christ is, and they are following Christ. They're doing their best as fallen human beings, redeemed by grace, to live in a way that honors Christ. So like Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, be imitators of them as they are of Christ. Copy their conduct. But we're also called to copy their doctrine. To copy their doctrine. Notice verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, verse 8 is often wrenched out of its context, but clearly it's an affirmation of the immutability of Jesus Christ. He's always the same. But in context, it makes an important point. What he's saying here is, listen, your former elders spoke the word of God to you, and the heart of their instruction was the person of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Those former leaders are gone. They're out of your life. But the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ that they proclaim haven't changed and won't change They will never change. Jesus Christ and the truth about him that's contained in the gospel is the same yesterday. Perhaps that's an allusion to when he was on earth during the incarnation. Or or perhaps it's it's an allusion as the writer of Hebrews thinks back to the early days of that church when these former leaders were leading it. That's Jesus Christ then. He's the same Jesus Christ today. Right now, in your circumstance, it's, he's the same. The gospel's the same. And forever, Jesus and his gospel never change. They're the same in every day in every age. By the way, let me just say, if you're here this morning and you are still in your sins, you've never repented and believed in Jesus Christ, you are estranged from your creator, you can never know him except the only way, the way he gave us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus Christ was in the past the only way to God. He is today the only way to God. He'll always be the only way to God. If you want to be forgiven of your sins, to know your creator, the only way that happens is if you will lay down your your arms of rebellion against him. You'll repent of your sin and you'll cry out to him for forgiveness and to change your heart. It's always been the gospel, always will be the gospel, and that's the gospel for you today. Hebrews urges us to hold on to the doctrine we were taught by former elders if they taught the word of God. It doesn't change. Considering that, look at verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strained teachings. The, the word carried away means to be misled, to be led astray. And, of course, the varied and strange teachings in contrast to the word of God, verse 7, that's centered in Jesus Christ, verse 8. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. The point 
of this is be grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God that you have been faithfully taught in the past by faithful leaders. Don't be swept away by the contemporary currents of false teaching. The word of God that centers on Jesus Christ always remains the same. I love the way one writer puts it. He says, the apostle does not exhort them to adhere to an opinion merely because it was an old opinion. Nor does he forbid their following the leading of truth, though they might be required to abandon what they had before held. But he cautions them against that vacillating spirit that would lead them to embrace an opinion because it's new. A religious opinion once embraced on good evidence or in which we have been trained should not be abandoned for light causes. Truth indeed should always be followed, but it should only be so after careful inquiry and study, end quote. So you are called to consistently imitate your elders' faith, both their conduct, their way of living, as they model what the Christian life looks like, as well as their doctrine. Back in Hebrews 13, your third duty is to receive their instruction. Receive their instruction. Verse 17, skip now to the second paragraph here, the the other bookend. Obey your leaders. Now, as I mentioned, beginning in verse 17, these verses deal with their current leaders or elders. This is a remarkable admonition, but it's not what a lot of people think. You see, the word for obey here is not the normal Greek word. It's not the word that's used, for example, when Paul talks about children obeying parents. It's not even the word that's used when we're told to obey God. This word obey is often translated to be won over, to be persuaded, to be convinced. Now, when you put that in this context, the leading Greek lexicon defines it this way, to be won over as the result of persuasion. The idea is this, you are to let yourself be won over to be persuaded, to be convinced so that you obey what you're taught. Now, let me be clear on what this doesn't mean because there's a lot of misunderstanding with this. This doesn't mean you should obey the commands your elders give you that are not in scripture or that are beyond the area of their authority, which is the functioning of this church. It doesn't mean you need to obey your elders if it's an issue of conscience not addressed in the Scripture, and for you to do so would be a violation of your conscience. It doesn't mean you need to obey what the elders tell you if it's really just a wisdom issue and not a matter of disobeying the Word of God. Obviously, if you're wise, you're going to be open to their counsel, but it's not a command to obey those things. This is not a justification for authoritarian leadership, which I'm sure that you don't experience, but you've perhaps seen it in other ways in other places. This is not a justification for the kind of spirit of cult leader Jim Jones, who in 1978 murdered 800 followers by ordering them to drink poison Kool-Aid. This isn't the kind of authoritarian leadership, sadly, that many evangelical churches buy into and make demands of their people that aren't in the Scripture, demanding things like, if you're going to be a part of this church, you are required to do this or to do that, things that aren't in the Scripture. 
demanding that they sign a commitment to give 10% of their income to the church, and on and on the list goes. So what are you commanded here to obey when it comes to your leaders? You are commanded to obey the clear commands of Scripture. You see, ultimately, your elders have a chief responsibility to teach the Scripture. That's why the qualification in 1 Timothy 3.2 says they must be able to teach. What does Paul tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2? I solemnly charge you, Timothy, as an elder, preach the word. That's the responsibility of elders. Titus 1.9, holding fast the, the faithful word. That's the job of elders. Verse 7 here in in Hebrews 13, they speak the word of God to you. That is the elders' Christ-assigned duty. What should your response to their teaching be? What does it mean to receive their instruction? Let me give you three ways you can receive your elders' instruction. Number one, be teachable. Not antagonistic and combative, but open and receptive. Acts 10.33 You remember Cornelius has gathered his family together to hear Peter. And this is what we read. We are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. You see the spirit, an openness, a receptivity. That's the spirit you need to have. Acts 17, 11. These were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, speaking about the believers in Berea. For they receive the word of God with great eagerness. There's that openness to say, yes, teach me. I want to learn. Explain the word of God to me. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Yes, examine what you're taught against the scripture. But if what you're being taught is what the Bible says, you are to see your elders as representing Christ. They aren't Christ, but they are his under-shepherds speaking his word to you on his behalf. Christ speaks to his church through his word and through the men he gifted and called to be elders who teach that word. It's a second way you can receive their instruction. Not only be teachable, but secondly, be diligent. Not mindlessly accepting their teaching, but checking it against the Scripture. Here's the teacher's mentality. If you're a teacher in this church, and I speak especially to those of us who are elders, here's the teacher's mentality. 2 Corinthians 4.2, by manifestation of the truth, that is by a, a disclosure of the truth, We are commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I don't ask you to sit there and say, yes, everything Tom says or everything Dusty says or everything the other elders say, that is gospel and I'm going to accept it mindlessly. No, we as teachers are commending ourselves in the manifestation of the truth to you, to your conscience. If you're an elder, that should be your mindset. We don't want people just to accept what we say. We want them to examine everything against the Scripture. Now, let me give you your mindset as a member of this church. It's Acts 17, 11. I mentioned it a moment ago. Let me finish it. These were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. There's that open receptivity. 
while at the same time examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. That's your duty. That's your job. Be diligent if you're going to respond to their instruction. A third way to respond and receive their instruction is to be obedient. Don't be only hearing God's word, but be doing it. That's the point of Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders as they teach the word of God to you. Obey that truth. Commit to obey to what you learn from the word of God through the elders ministry of the word. You remember James 1, that's the admonition. Don't be somebody who just hears. Be somebody who does. Your responsibility is not to come here and listen or to come here and fill up a page of notes that you file away. Your responsibility is to listen in such a way that you see yourself in the mirror of God's word and you leave here and you seek to obey what you've learned. Be obedient. If you want to respond biblically to your elders, carefully receive their instruction in these ways. There's a fourth duty in Hebrews 13, and that is submit to their leadership. Submit to their leadership. Verse 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Again, the word submit is not the normal Greek word. This is the only time it's used in the New Testament. It means to yield to authority. This word makes two points. First of all, it points out that you must acknowledge that Christ has given the elders authority over his church. That's where it starts. You have to acknowledge this is Christ's plan. These men didn't put themselves in these roles. This is Christ's plan for this church. Secondly, you must then yield to their authority in their decisions regarding the operation and function of this church. Christ has granted the elders of each church the authority to oversee the functioning of the church. The elders have to make a lot of decisions. They make a lot of decisions about life in the church that's not directly addressed in Scripture. When it comes to how the church itself functions, they have authority to make those decisions. Think of it this way. Just like there are issues of conscience for you, decisions you have to make about things that aren't in the Bible, there are issues of conscience that the elders have to make regard to the function and running of this church. For example, just as an example of some of the things that are under their rightful leadership of this church, things like the times of the services, how many services, the style of music, the types of musical instruments, the number of home fellowships or small groups, the people who will serve in leadership, and even how to respond to COVID. All of those things are within the purview of the elders of each local church and many other things like them. You, as a member, are called to acknowledge that Christ has given them the authority to make those kinds of decisions in the life of the church and to submit to their decisions in those things. doesn't mean you can't ask questions. doesn't mean you can't have input. doesn't mean you can't disagree. But it means just like in every other authority and submission relationship, you ultimately acknowledge their authority and you follow their leadership, submit to it. It's like 1 Peter 5, 5 that you were looking at last week. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. That's a call to young men who are especially prone to struggle with this, but it's a call to the entire church as well. So the writer of Hebrews goes on here to give us two reasons 
to receive the instruction from the elders to obey your leaders and to submit to their leadership in the running and function of the church. Two reasons. First of all, because Christ made them your leaders and they will answer to him. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For, because, here's why, they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. In Greek, the pronoun is emphasized. We could read it like this. They themselves keep watch over your souls. His point is, this is their assigned duty, their special duty. Keep watch literally means to go sleepless. It eventually came to mean to stay alert, to be watchful. You see, Christ has assigned Dusty, Drew, and Wade the responsibility to to continually be alert and keep watch over your soul. That's the duty Christ has given them. It's like Acts 20, 28, where Paul says to the Ephesian elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Be alert, be watchful. And at the judgment, every elder will give an accounting to Christ about how well he's carried out that stewardship. You'll give an account for yourself, and if you're in an authority, in a, in a marriage, in a home, you'll give an account for that responsibility as well. But the elders of this church and of countryside, each of us individually will give an account for how well we have carried out the stewardship we've been given by Christ. For every word taught, for every decision made, So the writer of Hebrews says, obey and submit to your elders because Christ made them your leaders and they will answer to him. Secondly, he says, because your failure to obey and submit will be a grief to your leaders and unprofitable for you. Verse 17, let them do this, and this is either let them keep watch or let them eventually give an account to Christ. Could be either, I think both are implied. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Obey the word of God, submit to their leadership of the church, and you will allow your elders to carry out their ministry with joy. 3 John 4, John says, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Let me tell you this, your elders will have no greater joy than to see you loving Christ and loving his word and seeking to live it out in your life. Nothing will bring them greater joy than that. At the same time, there are no greater burdens in ministry than two things. I'll tell you from experience, the two things that are the greatest burden for your elders will be members who aren't living in obedience to the scripture and members who are consistently pushing back against and complaining about practical ministry decisions that the elders have to make. Those are the two greatest griefs in ministry. The writer of Hebrews says, let them do their ministry with joy. And if you don't submit, he says it literally causes them to groan. That's the Greek word. Causes them to groan both now as they carry out their leadership and to groan when they stand before Christ to give an account because of what happened. There's a fifth and final duty you have to your elders, and that is pray for their needs. 
pray for their needs. The writer of this letter and former leader in their church asked the members of the church to pray for him. And in doing that, he really lays down yet another duty that members have to their elders to pray for them. Pray for them in what sense? First of all, in verse 18, pray generally for their spiritual welfare. Look at what he writes. Pray for us. Notice he uses the plural pronoun us, probably meaning him and the other leaders that are currently in the church. And then he gives a reason or motivation for his request. Pray for us for we, for because, here's the reason, we are sure that we have a good conscience. He means because we are sure, we know that we are genuine and sincere in this desire I'm going to ask you to pray for. The next clause explains what he's sincere about and what he wants the members to pray for their elders. And by the way, it's the same thing you should pray for your elders. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience in this, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Desiring is a decent translation, but it's not the best. This is not the normal word for a wish. This is a desire, this is the word for will. We intend, it's our will, it's our plan. He says it's our intention to conduct ourselves or to conduct our manner of life in a way that's above reproach. He and the other leaders of the church wanted their spiritual integrity to be beyond question in all things. You know what they were really saying? You know that list in 1 Timothy 3 of qualifications, that list in Titus 1 of qualifications? Pray that in all of those things we are above reproach, that that's who we are. Pray that we grow, increase in how well our characters match those qualifications. That should be your prayer for your elders. They do meet those qualifications or they wouldn't have been installed today as elders, but pray that they continue to increase in those things. You should also pray specifically for their personal circumstances. Verse 19, and I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Notice the author switches from the plural us in verse 18 to the singular I in verse 19. For some reason, he was separated from them. There's a lot of conjecture about why. I think there's a decent chance it's because he was one of those imprisoned for his faith back in chapter 13, verse 3. Regardless, he wants to be restored to them, and he asked them to pray about this specific circumstance. Can I just urge you, brothers and sisters, pray for your elders, pray for their general spiritual welfare, pray that they'll grow in godliness and holiness and love for Christ and obedience to Christ, pray for them in those senses, but then also pray about the specific trials, the specific duties or or difficulties, I should say, or the specific circumstances in the lives of your elders. Constantly pray for their needs, the general spiritual welfare of their lives and their specific personal circumstances. So there it is. There are the duties that before Jesus Christ, if you're going to belong to this church, you owe to Dusty, Wade, and Drew, and all of those who in God's goodness may join them in the future. Here it is. Treasure their ministry. Be grateful. 
Be grateful for them. Have an affection for them. Love them. Imitate their faith, both their conduct and their doctrine. Receive their instruction. Be be receptive, not combative. Be diligent to look in it in the scripture and search out what they teach you and be obedient to what you learn. Submit to their leadership. Let them make decisions about the life of this church because Christ has assigned them that and do so without complaining, without making life difficult for them. And then pray for their needs. Pray faithfully for them. If you're going to belong to this church or if you're going to belong to any church, that's what Christ expects from you when it comes to your leaders. May God enable you to do so. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the gift that it is. Lord, help us to take it seriously. I pray that even today, as as I've walked through these responsibilities, that you would give every person who belongs to North Lake Bible Church the heart to hear, to study these things out and make sure they're so, and to do them. Lord, thank you for the elders you've given this church. And I pray that the members of this church would be nothing but a joy and a blessing to them in the days ahead. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.